and made it to another chapter. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 13 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath, uh, at least some of the chairs, and this morning's passage in those Bibles is on page 822. Again, that's Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Start reading in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that just like you spoke from heaven to Peter and James and John, God, you still speak to your people today. God, that you speak to us through your word and in your word. And so we ask that that through your spirit working in us that you would do that today. God, that we would hear and understand the message of this passage. That we would know what it means and, and what it means for us. How it should change the way we live. How it should change the way we view what Jesus has done for us. God, we thank you for this uh, illustration of who he is and this reminder of what he's done. God, we thank you for him and his sacrifice on our behalf. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So the, for the past few weeks in Matthew, there have been some, some pretty shocking developments. Of course, if you've read the Gospel of Matthew before, they're not that shocking for us. They're not that amazing. They're not that surprising because we've, we've heard these stories before. We, we know what happens. We know what happens next. And so it's not that surprising. It doesn't amaze us as much as it should. But we can't forget the fact that what Matthew is writing about is what actually happened to him and and 11 other guys. He's writing about what they experienced. And so as we're reading about these things, you know, 2,000 years later, and we've read them and probably read them again and, and understand the stories and know the stories, they're experiencing them for the first time. And so I think it's helpful for us to try to really think about what it is that's going on in the lives of the disciples at this point before we move into our passage today. So 
The disciples have been following Jesus for a while now. They've, they've heard him preaching. They've heard him teaching. They've seen him do many miraculous things. And through that time, they just kind of continue to fail to understand who Jesus is. They continue to fail to understand what it means and what the significance is of what he's doing. And so they've just kind of had this, this, this long story with Jesus where Jesus does something and they don't really get it. They don't really know what he's doing. They don't really know who he is. And you know, for them in Israel, they would have seen false Christs, false messiahs kind of come and go. It wasn't an, an abnormal thing. And so they're, they're with Jesus. They're not understanding him. They're not sure, you know, what's going to happen. And then, you know, they get to our passage that we covered a few weeks ago where Jesus comes to them and he says, who do people say that I am? He asks the disciples, who do other people say that the Son of Man is? And he's talking about himself. And the disciples say, well, you know, some people say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say Jeremiah, some say some other prophet. And their answer makes it clear that the people outside of, you know, the disciples' circle don't really know who Jesus is. There's a whole lot of answers out there. There's a whole lot of claims that people are making about who Jesus is. So he says, but who do you say that I am? He he turns the question on the disciples, and we know that at that point, Peter speaks up, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he, he says that, not out of his own authority, not out of his own knowledge, not out of his own wisdom, but he says that under the inspiration of, of the Father who's in heaven. That's what Jesus says. He says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to Peter. He knows that because God has told him. And all the disciples agree. We know all the disciples agree because Jesus doesn't keep answering the question. He doesn't turn to Matthew and say, Matthew, who do you say that I am? So the disciples all express this faith in who Jesus is, and Jesus affirms what they say. He says, you're right. I am the Christ. I am the Son of the living God. And so, for the disciples, that was a great day. What they had hoped for for so long is proven true. They find out that Jesus is really the guy that's worth following. He really is the Messiah that God has sent to redeem the world. And so, they're happy about that. They're excited about that. But... What they weren't prepared for is that something changes in their relationship with Jesus. Because they now know that he's the Messiah, Jesus starts telling them more and more and more and more stuff. And what we saw last week is what he tells them is that he's going to go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must die. He must rise again. And so he is the Messiah, but just because he's the Messiah doesn't mean it's going to be exactly how the disciples think it's going to be. It doesn't mean he's going to march into Jerusalem and overthrow the Romans. It means that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to die. And if that's not enough, they get another surprise. Jesus follows that up by saying, If anyone, anyone, would be my disciple, he must take up his cross and deny himself. So he doesn't just say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. He says, if you want to follow me, then you have to be willing to do the same thing. So they go from this, this, this great experience of faith with Jesus where he he's reveals himself to be the Messiah to this day where he says, I'm going to suffer and die. And if you want to follow me, you need to too. Now we know that Jesus is using a metaphor of death. It doesn't mean that all the disciples actually have to die if they want to follow Jesus. But they need to surrender to the point that it actually imitates death. They, they give up their life to follow him. And we know that for 11 out of the 12 disciples, they died, literally. So 
They, they just they get to this point in their relationship with him where it's one kind of surprising thing after another, and none of those things, I don't think, would have prepared them for what happens in today's passage. In today's passage, right, Jesus picks out Peter and, and James and John. He takes them up on this mountain, and then he's transfigured before him, before them. And we'll talk about what that word means in a minute. He's transfigured. His, his appearance changed. His, his face shines. His clothes turn bright white. And then out of nowhere, two guys just kind of materialize. It's not just two random dudes. It's Moses and Elijah. So they're up there on the mountain with Jesus. Jesus' face starts shining. His clothes turn white. Then Moses and Elijah show up. And then they hear a voice from heaven, and they fall down terrified. And Jesus says, get up. It's okay. This is an odd passage. This should surprise us. This should amaze us. This should shock us that this happens. Not only does Jesus change in front of their eyes, but two guys show up out of nowhere. I mean, imagine what it would have been like for Peter and James and John as they're up there with Jesus. There's no way when they walk up that mountain, they're expecting, you know, I think we'll see Moses and Elijah up there. I bet God will make them appear to us to tell us something about Jesus. They think they're going up there for who knows what. But they didn't think this. And this is what happens. And so we need to figure out what's happening in this passage. And the main point of today's passage, of these 13 verses for us, is this. We should listen to Jesus. We should listen to Jesus. And I know that that is obvious, right? Of course we should listen to Jesus. He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Of course we should listen to Jesus. He his face transforms and his clothes are bright white. Of course we should listen to him. But even though that's a, a, a very simple point, that doesn't mean that it's easy for us to do. We should listen to Jesus. Let's look at the passage and we'll see this, this come out as we go through it. So verse 1. Matthew tells us that after six days, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up this mountain. Now what's interesting about this first verse is that Matthew tells us that it was six days. That's interesting because throughout Matthew's gospel, except when you get to the very end, when, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem and he dies on the cross and he rises again, except at that point of his gospel, he never gives these kind of specific time markers. He never says it was three days. He never says it was five days. He never says it was six days. He says, after this, now, then, later, later Jesus went and did this. Later Jesus went up on the mountain. And so, Matthew breaks from his pattern here. He does something different from what's normal for him. He does something different than what's typical for his writing. And we, and we need to ask the question, why? Why does Matthew tell us this happens six days later? Why doesn't he just say, you know, later, Jesus went up on the mountain? He says six days. I don't think that there's anything magical about the number of six. You know, you can read some, some people who think that there is. I don't. I think that the reason why Matthew does this, the reason why he gives us this specific time statement is because he wants us to know that what's about to happen in this passage, what's about to happen up on this mountain, is connected to this experience that Jesus has just had with the disciples. It's connected to what Peter has said about Jesus, and it's connected to what Jesus has said about Jesus. So this, this, this experience, this Jesus being changed, what the voice says from heaven, it's connected to all that has just happened in Matthew 16. It's connected because what it's doing is it's saying that what Peter said is true and what Jesus said is true. 
He really is the Son of God. He really is the Christ. And he really must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must die. And he must rise again. That's what this, this, this little phrase that says six days is. It's saying that this passage is connected to what's just happened. And it's connected in the way that it demonstrates the truth of what has just happened. So he goes up on this mountain. He takes Peter and James and John. He picks these three because they're the three kind of within the 12 that are closest to him. And they go up on this mountain. And they go up here. And it says, He was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. So, what in the world does it mean to be transfigured? The other day... I hit one of those concrete poles at a gas station with our car. And I was frustrated, but I did not come home and say, Jen, I'm really sorry. I just transfigured the front end of our car. That's not a word that that any of us, I imagine, use ever, except when we're talking about, you know, Matthew 17 or the parallel passage. So what does transfigured mean? Well, here's a definition, and then I'll explain this definition in the context. I think, here we go. Transfigure means to change the inward nature, and that change might produce outward visible effects. So it's a change of the inward nature, and this change might produce outwardly visible effects. That's what it means to transfigure something. It changes inwardly in a way that's probably, usually, sometimes visibly outward. And that's what's happening to Jesus. And so here we have to ask then, if that's what transfigure means, what changes about Jesus? What changes in his inward nature that produces these outwardly visible effects? And some of you at this point are thinking, wait a second. How can you say that Jesus changes? Right? Because God doesn't change. God can't change. James 1.17 says... Uh, there is no variation with God. There is no shadow due to change. God can't change. It's impossible for him to change. But Jesus changes. So if God is Jesus and Jesus is God, then can Jesus change? I think the answer here is yes. It doesn't mean that Jesus isn't God. It just means that when you're talking about Jesus, things don't work the same way because he's unique. Right? Jesus is, is God and man. And don't make the mistake, and I know that most of you probably know this, but don't make the mistake of thinking that that means that he's, he's 50% God and 50% man. That's not the case. He's 100% God, 100% man. And I know that for you math people out there, that's frustrating. But what I used to tell the, the middle schoolers that I taught Bible to, to make them more comfortable with it, is that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, and, and 200% awesome. Bounces the equation, and it's easier to remember. He's fully God and fully, demand, fully divine. And that means that because of that, he does things that God doesn't normally do. Right? He, he takes on flesh. He's born. He grows up. He gets taller. He gets heavier. He, he learns how to speak. He learns how to walk. He serves others. He spends time with sinners in their presence without killing them. He does things that God doesn't do. He, he dies at the end of the gospel. 
Because he is fully man and fully God, he does things that God doesn't normally do. And so here we see kind of a glimpse at this, that there is change taking place. And so the question is, what is it that changes about Jesus? It's not like he becomes someone else. It's not like he becomes something different. But what changes, I think, is, is hinted at for us in John 17, when Jesus is praying. He's praying, and what he prays in verse 5 gives us our answer. He says this, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus, in John 17, is asking God to give him the glory that he had before which implies that he doesn't have it now. And if we were to go to a Philippians 2, we're not going to go there, but if we were going to go there, what, what we see is that, that Jesus set some things aside so that he could come to earth, so that he could take on flesh, so that he could be our Redeemer. And, and one of those things is the glory that he had with the Father. And so what we're seeing here, I think, in Matthew 17, is we're seeing the disciples get a glimpse of the glory that Jesus had before he took on flesh. And not just before, but in, in, in Revelation, we see Jesus getting that glory again. There he's described in a very similar way. John describes him as a, having a face that shines like the sun, having, having bright white light all around him. John is seeing what Peter and James and, and John saw here. Jesus in his glory. And so this change that's taking place is they're seeing him with the glory that he had before and with the glory that he will have after, but that he's set aside so that he can come and take on flesh and be their redeemer. This is what they're seeing. And verse 3 begins with the word behold. And we've talked before about how this, this word, even though it doesn't convey that to us, it conveys some kind of a sense of, of shock and surprise and amazement, even though it sounds like a boring old word to us. But here, it's clear, right? They say, behold, Moses and Elijah appear. That's surprising. That's not something that Peter and James and John were, would expect. That's not something that anyone reading the Gospel of Matthew would expect to happen in verse 3. But it does. They show up. And here's my question. When I read this, every time I think, how did Peter and James and John know that it was Moses and Elisha? Did they have name tags on? Did they like, you know, color their pictures when they were in Sunday school and they're like, oh, that kind of looks like Moses. I don't know. But I think this. If God can reveal Jesus' glory to Peter, James, and John, and if he can make Moses and Elijah materialize before them, then certainly he can let them know who they are. Right? It would be pretty silly if God go, goes to all the work to, to make these guys show up and then they don't have any idea who it is. There's actually, and this has nothing to do with the sermon, but there's this passage in the Book of Mormon where people hear a voice from heaven and they have no idea what it's saying. And when I read it when I was in college, I thought, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. If God is going to speak from heaven, people are going to know what he's saying. And that's just one of the many reasons why Mormons are wrong. (laughs) So, Moses and Elijah show up, and, you know, I'd like to know more about how they know, but that's not the right question. The right question is why. Why is it Moses and Elijah? 
Why not someone else? I think the reason why these two guys show up is because what they represent. We all know that Moses represents the law. Throughout the New Testament, that's, that's how a lot of the authors even refer to the first five books of the Bible. They refer to them as the books of Moses. Moses represents the law. Elijah was, was one of the most well-known prophets. He represents the prophets. And so these two guys show up that represent the law and the prophets. And the point that we're going to see as we move down is that, it's, that Jesus is superior to them. They're there. Jesus is better than them. And that's what is going to be shown to Peter and James and John. But, verse 4, Peter misses the point, as he usually does. This is just odd to me. These guys show up out of thin air, and Peter says, Hey, let's make some tents. I don't know why tents, you know, but uh, most people say that what he's, what he's suggesting is that they should create some sort of memorial to this event. So Peter wants to make three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I like that Peter even explains that to Jesus, as if Jesus can't figure out who the three tents are for. But he does. Peter doesn't get very far in his tent making before he's interrupted by this voice from heaven. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Here we need to notice that the voice doesn't say anything at all about Moses and Elijah. Nothing. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He completely disregards Moses and Elijah. They're not transfigured. They aren't shown in their glory. Jesus is. The voice doesn't say, listen to them. The voice doesn't say, pay attention to them. The voice says, listen to him. What's happening here? When they appear, they're appearing to show that Jesus is superior to the law and the prophets. Jesus is superior to Moses and Elijah. That's what the point is. And that's what the voice says. And there are two things that we should notice about what the voice says. The first is that the, the first part of the phrase, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, that's exactly what the voice from heaven said way back in Matthew 3 when Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. Jesus comes up out of the water and they hear this voice and this is exactly what the voice says. And what that tells us is that everything, everything that happened between Matthew 3 and Matthew 17 has received the approval of God. Because God is still just as pleased with Jesus here as he was way back in Matthew 3. That means that everything that Jesus has said, everything that Jesus has taught, everything that Jesus has preached, everything that Jesus has done has received the approval of the Father. And most importantly for the disciples, that includes what he just said about his mission, about how he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must die, he must rise again. God is saying, I am pleased with him. I am pleased with what he's done. I'm pleased with what he said. And that includes him dying and suffering. The second thing that we should notice is that he says, listen to him. You see their response to this statement in verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. This is when their actions finally start to make sense, right? The tense doesn't make sense. 
them hearing a voice from heaven, them seeing two guys show up, them seeing Jesus in his glory. The response to that is, fall on your face and be afraid. And they finally get there. But the question is, why? Why are they terrified? It's not because of Jesus' glory, right? They saw that. They, they saw his glory. They weren't terrified back in verse 3. Verse 3, verse 4, Peter responds with tents. Moses and Elijah show up. They're not terrified. They want to make tents. It's not until they hear the voice that they're terrified. And so what is it about the voice that scares them? What is about the voice that makes them fall down, fall on their faces, and be terrified? I, because as I said, they, they, they heard it back in Matthew 3. They heard him say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And, and there's no record of any kind of response like this. The people aren't afraid of Jesus' baptism. And so why are they terrified here? What's different this time? The difference is this last phrase, listen to him. The father says, listen to my son, and the disciples fall down terrified. The father says, do what he says, right? For the Jews, listening didn't just mean hearing. It didn't just mean stuff going into your ear and you, you being able to, to hear it. For the Jews, when someone said, hear this, or listen to this, it meant do it. And so what the father is saying here is he's saying that this is my son, this is whom I'm pleased with, you need to do what he says. And they fall on their faces out of fear. They fall on their faces out of fear because they've been with Jesus. They've heard and seen everything that's happened between Matthew 3 and here. They've heard his teaching. They've heard his preaching. They've seen him do all these miraculous works. And here's some highlights of what he said Be humble, be merciful. Be one who seeks righteousness more than food. Be pure. Don't get angry even in your heart. Don't lust even in your heart. Always speak truthfully even in your heart. Love your enemies even in your heart. Give to the needy. Don't be greedy. Don't worry. Don't condemn others with your own standard. Share Jesus' message with others. Minister to others like he did. Don't be afraid of men. Fear God. Love Jesus more than any other person. Deny yourself and take up your cross. And just in case any of us are, are foolish enough to think that we've got that down, here's one more. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The voice says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The voice is saying, he's my son. He's done and said and preached what I told him to do, and you need to do what he tells you to do. And the disciples respond with terror because they know they haven't done it. Right? Peter just got called Satan. He knows he falls short. James and John may have done some of these things, but no way are they perfect like the Father is, and they know they're going to screw up later. Terror is the right response for them. 
This voice from heaven speaks. It's the same voice that transfigures Jesus. It's the same voice that makes Moses and Elijah appear. It's the same voice that upholds creation. And they are terrified because they know they cannot do what it says to do. They can't do everything that Jesus has said. But Jesus comforts them in verse 7. He comes, he touches them, and he says, Rise and have no fear. And when they lift up their eyes, they see nobody but Jesus. So the question that I have at this point is, why shouldn't they be afraid? If the voice is really saying what, what I've explained the voice to say, if the voice is really saying that we need to do what Jesus says, if we need to listen to Jesus, and if, if he's said all of those things, if he said that we need to be perfect as the Father is perfect and we know that we cannot do that, then shouldn't we all be terrified? Why shouldn't the disciples be afraid? The answer is in what Peter said. Because Jesus is the Christ. Because he's the Son of the living God. Because of what Jesus has said, because he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer, he must die, he must rise again, because Jesus is our substitute in both life and death, because he lives this perfect life that we can't live, because he obeys everything that he's said, everything that the Father said where we can't, because he dies in our place, paying the penalty that we deserve for our sin, because he satisfies this, this terrifying voice from heaven and all the wrath and all the judgment and all the condemnation that comes with it, that's why we don't need to be afraid. That's why the disciples don't need to be afraid because Jesus knows what he's going to do. And he's going to take away their terror. And look at what's happening in this passage. They see Jesus first with his glory that he had before the foundation of the world. Then they see Moses and Elijah. Moses, who, who, who represents this, this standard, this, this law, this, this burden that they can never live up to. They see Elijah, who, who represents the prophets, the prophets which were always, throughout Israel's history, telling them to, to repent and return to God or face his wrath and judgment and punishment. And they hear this voice from heaven telling them to do what they are incapable of doing. They fall down. They're afraid. Jesus comes. He touches them. He tells them to get up. And then when they get up, what do they see? Jesus. Just Jesus. What this passage, I think, is telling us is that because Jesus goes to Jerusalem, because he suffers, because he dies, because he rises again, he stands in our place. He stands in our place before Moses, before the law, before all of that legalism. He stands in our place before the prophets and, and their call to repent and their, their promise of punishment. And he stands in front of that terrifying voice from heaven that's condemning us because we cannot do what he says. And he does it all for us. They saw no one but Jesus only. So the question is, what does this mean for us? If this is really what this passage is communicating, then what does this mean for us? Should we be afraid? Like the disciples were, even though Jesus comes and tells them they don't need to be. Do we need to fear God? 
I think the answer is yes, but it's qualified. First one, for, for people who are not believers. And by someone who's not a believer, I mean someone who hasn't placed all their trust and all their hope and all their faith in Christ and who he is and what he's done. And then responding to that call in faith and obedience. If that's not you, then you should respond like these disciples have. Because you still bear that condemnation because Jesus hasn't taken it for you. For believers, we're in the place of the disciples where Jesus comes and he says, rise and have no fear. We, we don't fear condemnation. Romans 8 tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, the, the punishment, the judgment has been taken away. But we should fear his discipline. When we sin, when we fail to listen to him, we do bear discipline for that. God disciplines those he loves. And that's not going to be easy. That's going to be painful. And we should fear that. That should motivate us, just like his grace motivates us to, to listen to him. Let's look at the rest of the passage quickly. Verse 9, they simply come down the mountain and Jesus says, don't tell anybody. We've, we've seen this before. Here he gives a qualifier. He says, don't tell anybody until I'm raised from the dead. And so for us, it's pretty easy, right? He's risen. That means we should tell people. And it's not just a, a, a permission for us to tell people who he is and what he's done. We know that in the end of Matthew, that comes with a command. We're, we're called, we're told, we're commanded to go and tell people what he's done. And to call them in the same way the Father does from heaven to listen to Jesus. Go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Teaching them to listen to Jesus. That's what he tells the disciples to do at the end. Verses 10 through 13, which is kind of odd part about Elijah. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. In the Old Testament, there was a prophecy that Elijah would be the forerunner of the Messiah. We know from the Gospels that that forerunner is uh, John the Baptist. And we know from Matthew that what happened to John the Baptist is he got his head chopped off. They did to him as they pleased. And he says, so also the Son of Man will suffer. I think the important thing we should see here is that just like they do other places, they don't know what Jesus is saying. They don't understand. They're confused. Then why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? They ask Jesus a question because they want to understand what he's saying. And so the point for us is that it's okay to not understand what Scripture says. It's okay to understand or to, to not understand what Jesus says. But it's not okay to be okay with that. It's not okay just to say, well, I don't really understand this passage, so uh, I'm just going to read another one. I'm just going to read some other book. That's easy. The point for us is that we should seek understanding because we can't listen to Jesus if we don't know what Jesus says. And so if we don't know, we should ask like they do. And as verse 13 tells us, then they understand. 
They get their answer. Real quick, I want us to talk about a passage in, in Second Peter, and then we'll be done. I don't think I have it on a slide. Second Peter 1, 16 through 20. I'll just read it out loud. This is Peter writing. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from the Father and the majestic, or the, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So, right there. Peter is, is telling his, his audience about the transfiguration. He's saying, I was up there on the mountain. I saw these things happen. I heard the voice from heaven. I was an eyewitness. In 19, he says this, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, verses 16, 17, and 18, he talks about the transfiguration. He talks about what he saw, he talks about what he heard. And then he shifts to say, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention. He's talking about the word of God. And he says, we have it more fully confirmed. What he's saying there is he's saying that this is more reliable than what he has just talked about in verses 16, 17, and 18. He's saying the prophetic word inspired by God is is more valuable, more certain, more trustworthy, more reliable than my own eyes, my own ears. It's more reliable than what I saw. It's more reliable than what I heard. And his conclusion is, you would do well to pay attention to it. What he's doing is he's taking his experience of the transfiguration and he's applying it to the people that he's writing to. He's saying, I saw this, I heard this, and this is what you should do. And what he says is pay attention to the word. Or, in a simpler way, he says, listen to him. He is is taking what he saw, what he heard, what he learned from the transfiguration, and he's applying it to his readers. He's applying it to us. And so the question that we have to ask is, how do we listen? Again, this is simple, but not easy. Because listening doesn't just mean hearing, it means doing. And so how do we listen to Jesus as believers? Well, first of all, we need to know what he says. If we're going to do what he says, we need to know what he says. And the way we know what he says is we study his word. We read it, we study it, we memorize it, we make it our own so that we know it and we internalize it. And the second thing, once we find out what it says, we need to do it. All the time, and you know, this is easy to kind of say just to college students, but it's for everybody. All the time I have conversations with people that say, I just want to know what the will of God is for my life. Well, 
the Bible is the will of God for your life. Do that, and then you can worry about who you're going to marry or what you're going to do after college or, you know, what video game you should play tonight. God's will is, is clear to us in Scripture. What Jesus tells us to do is what we need to do. And there's really no way around that. And then, obviously, like the disciples, we know that that's something that we're not going to do all the time. And so we should listen to him. We, we, we must listen to him. We're commanded to listen to him. But what about when we don't? When we don't, I think we do what Jesus tells the disciples to do. We rise and, and don't be afraid. We know that there is no condemnation because Jesus has stood in our place before the law, before the prophets, and before his Father. We shouldn't wallow in condemnation. We should get up knowing that our sin will probably bring discipline. But his discipline is because he loves us and it's for our good so that we can listen to him. Let's pray.